That's a good thing because my voice is not what it should be right now. I have a quiz for you this morning. As Art said, I'm, I'm going to spend some time preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes here. How many of you know where that is in your Bible? Okay, good job. As Pastor David said, the Old Testament is equally important and we are ignorant in our Old Testament and so I feel the conviction to help you to understand your Old Testament better. I happen to love the Old Testament. I spent a lot of time there, as you know. So here's a quiz for you this morning. What do these things have in common? The bathroom sink, Facebook, lifestyle lifts, hair club for men, the real housewives of Beverly Hills. Vanities. That's right, they're all vanities. That's right. You know, materialism has gripped our culture like nobody's business. I think most of you would probably agree with that statement. It is rampant in our culture. And along with materialism has come really uncontrollable vanity. Out of control vanity. Our culture is awash in it. We even have license plates now that are called what? Vanity plates. I mean, it's, it's really kind of ironic. And the Bible, I know all of you are going to go out there and cover up your license plate after this message, right? But it, vanity is more than simply a problem with the culture. You realize that, don't you? Uh, when Solomon talks about vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's more of a problem with humanity itself. It's, it's a deeper, more troubling concern than just materialism than just the pride of life. It is a problem with humanity itself. Uh, There is no substance to life. There is no meaning to life. There is no joy in life apart from the knowledge of God. Uh, Solomon is going to beat this uh, theme into us over and over and over again through the book of Ecclesiastes. Why don't you turn there if you're not there already. And we're going to read through the first 11 verses. This morning, we're just going to deal with the first three verses. And I thought I would take the opportunity to try to give you a working overview of the book. Uh, There's only one way to do that, and that's to flip around through the book and read some verses. So I hope your fingers are nimble this morning, because we're going to look at a lot of verses. Uh, So Ecclesiastes 1, uh, verses 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, 
So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, See, this is new. Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things, later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. What an uplifting passage, huh? I, I just wanted to cheer you up this morning with this passage, and I wanted to have you walk out of here feeling better about yourselves this morning. I hope it works. You know, my goal is to just give you a broad overview of this book to try to help you understand the type of wisdom that Solomon is talking about here in this book. He's written this book for a reason. It is wisdom literature. And how many of you think you need wisdom? I should see everybody's hands because we all need it. Uh, so whereas Proverbs sort of gives us the, sort of the practical path to wisdom, Ecclesiastes is a little bit different tactic. It's a reflection on wisdom. It's a reflective path to wisdom. And so you want to note that, that difference there. So let me give you a working outline of the book. This should come up on a slide for you. Chapters 1, 1 to 2, 26, uh, basically the preacher is meditating on wisdom and on life, and as he meditates on it all through his own experience, he comes to the understanding that man is powerless. So that's the first lesson that he learned as he contemplated life and wisdom, is that he understands that man is powerless by his own experience in life. Secondly, 3.1 to 5.20 is the idea of observation. He learned by observing everything around him that, that God has a plan for everything. God is not powerless. He is powerful and it's all his plan. It's according to his plan. And as he observed life and looked around him, he came to the conclusion that God has a plan. 6.1 to 8.15, uh, by application of wisdom, the preacher learned that providence uh, controls all the inequalities of life. Why does the wicked prosper? Because God's providence rules. That's why. Uh, why does one person have one thing and not another? Because God's providence rules. And the book concludes 8.16 to 12.14, the preacher learned as a sort of a summary, as a conclusion to it all, that we should, in light of these truths, we should fear God, we should obey God, and we should enjoy life. We should enjoy life because it's brief, it's short, and it's over like that. And so his conclusion in the matter is, fear God, obey God, and enjoy life because you will meet your Maker very soon. Very soon. Not in a hedonistic way, I should say. Don't enjoy life like, uh, like grab the gusto kind of thing. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that every day is a gift from God. Every day that we have on this earth is a gift from God, and it should be enjoyed. It should be enjoyed. So that's sort of the working outline of the book. What we're looking at this morning then is we're falling right in this idea of through his own experience, uh, Solomon has understood that man is powerless. So that helps you to understand why it sort of takes sort of a pessimistic tone about vanity. 
everything that Solomon has done with his life, and he's evaluating it all, and in his opinion, what does it amount to? It amounts to virtually nothing. So, this week and next week, the way I've decided to deal with these 11 verses is we're going to see two lessons. Uh, We're going to learn two lessons here in this book about vanity itself. Vanity is not the theme of the book. The theme of the book is God. (laughs) Most of your Old Testament is about God. But the theme of the book is the practical observation, the reflective look at life and wisdom. Uh, So it's it's not all about vanity. I just want you to understand that. But we're going to do this week and next. We'll learn a couple of lessons about vanity. And my hope is that you'll be convinced of the seriousness of vanity and how to live wisely in light of it. Okay, so the first lesson we're going to talk about just this week, we'll deal with the second lesson next week, and that is that vanity is problematic. How many of you would agree with that? (laughs) It's a problem, isn't it? It's a very big problem. Uh, So this is Solomon's teaching, as I said, based on his own experience uh, with wisdom. It's his reflection on wisdom and things he's learned along the way. And what I wanted to do is try to help you understand how it fits in with the rest of Scripture for a moment here. Let me give you this picture. Uh, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament commentator, said that the three big wisdom books in the Old Testament can be likened to three houses. Three houses. So keep this in mind as we look at this. Proverbs is a seven-pillared house of wisdom. There's a picture of it there. That's the book of Proverbs. And better still, uh, he says it might be considered that gracious, well-stocked home of the accomplished wife whose virtues bring the book to its conclusion. It's the idea of the stability of the halls of wisdom. It's a great wisdom book. Okay, It's the teachings on wisdom. Job, on the other hand, looks a little more like this. And Kidner says it's perhaps the wreckage in which his family perished when, uh, you'll remember, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And that's what it looked like. It, it fell on everybody. It, maybe it's an ash heap to which uh, Job banished himself. But Job, as it reflects on wisdom, is just uh, this pile of rubble. It's just a pile of rubble. And why do the righteous suffer? Well, we don't really know. We're never given an answer. But they do, because God is sovereign. That's what we learn from Job. And here's Ecclesiastes. It's more of what you see a house in slow decay. Ecclesiastes, the the writer here, Solomon, is is kind of after this idea, insisting on the transience, if you will, of earthly glory. We are here for but a moment, and we will pass on to eternity. And in the meantime, while we're here, we're in slow decay. Uh, it's, it's kind of like in chapter 12, verses 3 to 4, he gives this description of a house here. He says, In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble, and mighty men stoop, the grinding ones stand idle because they are few, and those who look through windows grow dim, and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, And all the daughters of song will sing softly. It's the idea of 
just this slow decay. There's no way around it. Life is in the inexorable grip of slow decay. And that's what Solomon is looking at. And he's not... For the unbeliever, this book just undoes them. But so does life, right? They look at life, they see nature, they see what's happening around them, and they don't understand it. They can't understand it because they don't know God. We look at it and we see, yes, there's an upside to that and there's a downside to that. It is God's world. It is His rules. But we can enjoy life because we know Him. Uh, Even though our time is short, we can embrace God and therefore it has meaning. So this, I hope this helps you. This is just kind of Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. This kind of gives you a picture of what we're talking about in the book here, okay? So let me, let me sort of support this idea or this truth that, that vanity is problematic. Uh, there's really three supports here that I see in these verses, one for each verse. And, and let me just talk to you about Solomon's person a little bit. You see in verse 1, he says, the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, Solomon nowhere in the book actually calls himself the author. So we, we know that he is though because if you look over at Proverbs 1.1, 1, 1, he says that, this is, that they are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And then when you look at Ecclesiastes 1.1, 1, 1, it says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Israel. It's almost identical. And so we get the idea that Solomon is the author of this book. But he kind of gives you a threefold description of himself here, right? And, and you really have to understand who Solomon is in order to understand why he wrote the book, right? So he first calls himself the preacher. He calls himself the preacher. Why does he designate himself that way? Well, the Hebrew title of the book is, is Kohelet. And what that means is preacher. Or some people think it means assembly. So it's somebody who speaks to an assembly. A kahal in Hebrew is an assembly. And so the idea here is that he's speaking to a congregation. Uh, Some other people have suggested uh, it may mean gatherer. It may carry the idea that he is a gatherer of wisdom. I don't know if I buy that or not. He doesn't directly call himself Solomon, though, but as we see when we compare Proverbs 1 and Ecclesiastes 1, the same language is used. So Solomon, we're going to say, is the preacher, right? Solomon, the preacher. Secondly, he says he's the son of David. Now, as you know, David had a lot of sons. Solomon wasn't the only son. But Solomon was his second-born son, and he was heir to the throne of Israel. So this, of course was after David's firstborn died, right? God took the life of that firstborn child because of his sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent uh, slaying of Uriah. So he is, Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba. And early in Solomon's reign, you remember that old story that Solomon was visited by God and God said, you know, three wishes and what do you want? (laughs) No. He said, I'll give you anything you want. And what did Solomon choose? He chose wisdom. Well, there's a context to that. 
I want you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 4 real quick. Proverbs chapter 4, and I want you to look at verses 3 to 9. See, sometimes we read these Old Testament stories and we don't know how they necessarily fit together. Uh, They sort of seem like, okay, that was a nice story. I learned that in Awana, but how does it fit with the rest of Scripture, right? And and so look at uh, Proverbs 4 and start in verse 3. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me and said to me, quotation marks, this is what, who was Solomon's father? David. So these are David's words to Solomon, and this is what his advice was. He said to him, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live, acquire wisdom. Get wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Prize her and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a garland of grace. She will present you with a crown of beauty. Those are David's words to his son Solomon. And God visits Solomon and says, what do you want me to give you, Solomon? And, and Solomon says what? I want wisdom. Because that's what my daddy told me to ask for. So he gets wisdom. Uh, David tells him to get it, and he gets it. So, so not only did Solomon get wisdom, but if you look at Ecclesiastes 1.16, flip back there, He didn't just get wisdom. He got more wisdom than anybody had ever had before. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. He got more than anybody else had ever had before. That's who Solomon is. He's also said to be the king in Jerusalem. And we know that the united monarchy was, was reigning right now. We know that Saul was the first king of the united monarchy, right? Uh, 1050 to about 1010 B.C. We know that David ascended the throne after him from 1010 to 970. And we know that Solomon reigned from 970 till his death in 931. So Solomon is the third king of the united monarchy of Israel. And as such, we also know that he was the most successful uh, there was a unilateral buildup of, of his massive stockpile of riches and wealth. He built up the kingdom like nobody's business. Uh, it was so great that right, the Queen of Sheba came up from Africa to check it out. He had increased the borders of Israel. He built the temple in Jerusalem. He built his own house, which was even more grand than the temple. He multiplied armies. And unfortunately, he multiplied a lot of wives to himself. Right? We know this from our Old Testament. He multiplied wives and concubines uh, like nobody's business. 
which ultimately led to idolatry entering into the nation and ultimately the downfall of the entire nation. So Solomon, the wisest man on earth, who wrote the Proverbs, who wrote Ecclesiastes, made some pretty foolish choices in his life, didn't he? Kind of makes you wonder how we compare to that, huh? Here's the wisest guy in the world, and he makes decisions like this. The reality, though, is this is Solomon's reflection on it all. He's looking over his life now. He's an aged man, and he's looking at all these accomplishments, and he's saying, what was it all for? What was it all for? Let me give you four words to describe his life. Wisdom, works, wealth, and women. Solomon was the James Bond of the Old Testament. (laughs) Wisdom, works, wealth, and women. Uh, For his works, uh, I won't give you all these, I won't turn you to all these places. We simply don't have time. But you could look at Ecclesiastes 2, 4 to 6, 1 Kings 5, 13 to 18, uh, 1 Kings 7, 1 through 8. That gives you an idea of the massive buildup and stockpiling of the guy's um, accomplishments, if you will. His wealth, you could look at Ecclesiastes 2, 7 to 9, 1 Kings 10, 14 to 20. For the women, 1 Kings eleven 3, I'll just, I'll just tell you what that says. 700 wives. 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. How many days are there in a year? So that gives you some idea of what the harem looked like. Right? And his summary of all of it, as he looks at it and he looks at his life, turn over to Ecclesiastes 2.10, He says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So I'm looking at my life. And you know what? It's a big zero. It's a big zero. Uh, So he's an older man, and so we're getting a glimpse into the heart of someone who has indulged the desires of his flesh for decades. He's He's not denied himself anything, and now he's looking back at it all, and he's wondering what it all means. So you could take two tacks on this, and you could say Solomon was either very blessed of God or it was all vanity. He was either blessed or he was a fool. Or it was prosperous and it was the, the prosperous blessings of God or his vanity. Or it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. Look at verse 2. I just want to look at Solomon's pronouncement here. This phrase is going to be the key to this first section of the book here. And he says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And this is where I got the title for the sermon, Everything is Nothing. I'll tip my hand a little bit here. As I said, this is not the main theme of the book. 
It is a reflection on wisdom. But vanity is a big problem, but it's not the only problem. So Solomon is evaluating life. He's trying to make sense of it all. And what does he come up with? Wisest man on the planet. Here's what he says. A vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In, in Hebrew, the word vanity is hebel, and it's where we get Abel from, the name Abel. And what it means is, uh, well, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to tell you what it means yet, because we're going to look at some verses, and I want to try to help you understand the meaning by looking at these verses, okay? Uh, this is the key statement of the entire book, I think. Uh, it is the premise upon which Solomon will build the rest of his case. Uh, he's looking at life, and it's not making a whole lot of sense to him at this point. And he's trying to reflectively understand it and come up with, why am I here? What is the reason for it all? So in Hebrew, the idea is, I want you to hear this. I, I normally wouldn't do this, but I want you to hear because there's poetry and there's irony in it. And I, I, need, you to, I need you to hear this. So it's, it's the idea of Hebel, Hebelim, which means vanity of vanities. Hebel, Hebelim, vanity of vanities. Hakol Havel, which means everything is vanity. The last two words I want to focus on for a minute because I, I need you to see uh, in the Hebrew what they look like. There they are. Now, last week, David spoke to you about how even the smallest little stroke of a letter uh, will not be dropped from the law. Do you remember that? And so what I want you to notice, those two words look a whole lot alike, don't they? And they sound a whole lot alike, don't they? And so the first word is hakol. First word would be on your, on your right, right? Because it reads right to left in Hebrew, okay? So the first letter is what we call a hey, and in that word it's a definite article. And what that means is it's the word the, okay? So it's the coal, the whole, or everything, right? And the second word is hevel, which is what they've translated as vanity. But you can see the middle letter. You see how there's only one little stroke in the lower right corner that makes the difference between those two letters? So they not only look alike, they sound alike. And so the author is trying to show you something here. He's trying to create a sense of irony, and I want to show this to you. Uh, look at 2 Kings 17.15. The first word is not hard to understand. It just means the everything, or, or literally uh, the all, or the whole, or it's just everything. But look at 2 Kings 17.15. That's 1 Kings 17.15. I knew that wasn't right. So they rejected his statutes and his covenants which he made with their fathers and his warnings which, with which he warned them and they followed vanity and became vain and went after the nations which surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. 
You see that translated there, vain, vanity. Uh, turn to Job 27.12. Behold, all of you have seen it. Why then do you act foolishly? Okay, so we have vain and we have foolish. Job 35.16. There's just a multitude of translations for this word, but I think when you hear them all, it gives you a a picture of what the word actually means. 35.16 is the idea. So Job opens his mouth emptily. You see the word emptily. That's That's the word. Psalm 78.33. Turn to your right. Psalm 78.33. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. The idea is futility. Proverbs 21.6. The acquisition of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. The pursuit of death. So the idea there is a fleeting vapor. It's a puff of smoke. I'm going to turn you to this, these two here. Ecclesiastes 9, 9, 11, 10. The idea there is fleeting. The idea there is fleeting. A Jeremiah 10, 15. It's translated there as worthless. Worthless. And Lamentations 4.17, it's translated as useless. Useless. And the interesting one I want to show you is Jeremiah 10.8. Isaiah, Jeremiah, chapter 10 and verse 8. Says, but they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Uh, the, it's translated delusion there, but in the Old Testament, idols are what are known as hebels. They're they're nothings. They're nothings. Psalm thirty nine six, which is what I want to play off of here. Psalm thirty nine six. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. Uh, verse 6, phantom is an image, but the uproar for nothing. Nothing is the idea. So, where did I come up with the title for this sermon? Everything is nothing. It's from that little expression, those little two words, the irony that the author is trying to show you, everything is nothing. It's worthless. It's vain. It's vanity. It's fleeting. It's nothings. So he's looking at his life and he's poetically saying, it's all vanishing vapors. It's all puffs of smoke. It's nothingness. Uh, Creation apart from the Creator is foolishness. It's worthless. Uh, James 4 picked up on this idea, right? How do you know where you're going to go, what you're going to do? You're going to go somewhere and invest. You don't realize that your life is what? 
It's just a little vapor. It's just a puff of smoke. You're here and then you're gone. You don't know what's gonna, what tomorrow's going to hold. Uh, James is picking up on this idea. So, so that truth either leads someone to despair or it leads them to joy. And, and that's the interesting thing about the book. A wisdom would find joy in that truth. A fool would despair over it. Uh, Doug Wilson wrote a little commentary on this book. He called it Joy at the End of a Tether. Joy at the End of a Tether. It means uh, you're hooked up like a dog and you can enjoy life within the boundaries that God has drawn. It's joy um, because there's freedom in it, but it, it is bound and tethered by God's determined boundaries. So, so what's the point of it all? Let me, let me get to verse 3 here. I think we're running out of time. Verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work then? What's the point? Uh, all his work which he does under the sun, what's it amount to? Uh, you know, Solomon's point here is not to knock life altogether. He's not knocking life. He's just looking at it and saying, uh, is there meaning behind it apart from God? And the answer is, no. No, there really isn't. I remember this story. This little boy came home playing baseball with his friends, and he runs into the house, and he says, Mom and Dad, where do I come from? Where do we come from? His dad thinks, okay, Billy's only eight years old, right? Am I going to tell him this story about the birds and the bees? So the dad sits him down, and he tells him the whole story about the birds and the bees. And he thinks, well, I better tell him, or else the neighbors are going to tell him. So he tells him the whole story of the birds and bees, and his son says, oh, that's interesting because my friend's uh, parents came from New York. So I was just wondering where we came from. <laughs> you know, children ask the darndest questions, don't they? I, I remember my daughter used to stump me with some of the questions that she would ask. Uh, one of them in particular was, Dad, why are we? Why are we? That is a hard... Let me sit you down and let's try to explain this, okay? Why are we? Well, Solomon gives us the answer to the why are we in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think um, part of it is, is in this expression, under the sun. Do you see that? Uh, the, the phrase shows up 29 times in this book. And what it does is it intentionally limits the perspective of the book to man's point of view, man's perspective, okay? So this is man, and he's living on the earth, and he is doing everything he does under this sun, which is a constant in the universe, right? But man is transient, but the sun is always there. And so man's perspective is, is limited to living life out under the sun until he's gone. So why are we? Well, all of our days are lived under the sun, and unlike God who is above all of that, uh, we are not God, and He is God. That's the point. Our life is limited by the fact that, that we're not God. And that's the point of the book. We're not God, and He is. And it's His world, and we just have to live with it. And we can enjoy it if we know Him, but if we don't know Him, it leads us to despair. So, let me prove this. There's three upsides 
uh, if you will, three upsides, three downsides, three good news, three bad news, uh, to, to this fact that God is God and we are human. There's three upsides to that. Uh, the whole book, by the way, is, as I said, is an invitation to enjoy life. It's not supposed to be depressing. It's an invite to enjoy life. And you can reference uh, 224, 518, and 815. And ironically, each one of those verses ends each of those earlier sections that I was telling you about. They summarize each section. So what's the end? So we should enjoy life. We should enjoy life. But there's three upsides. Let me, let me run through them with you here. Happiness and significance are universal desires, which means three things. Despite the uncertainties of life, we should enjoy it as God's gift to us. Despite the uncertainties of life, we should enjoy it. I always tell people, don't just get through things, but what? Enjoy them, right? It's one of the things I tell people when they're about to be baptized. I say, don't just get through this, but enjoy it. Why? Because you're never going to get to do this again. I did a wedding yesterday. I slapped the guy on the back, and I told him, I said, hey, man, don't, I know you're anxious about this, but I said, don't just get through this. Enjoy it. Soak it in. You know, if I could have done anything different in my life, I was just telling my wife this a few weeks ago, I would have lived with more sobriety as the years passed and enjoyed them more. It seems like somehow, somewhere, some way, I've lost 10 years of my life, and I don't know where they are. How many of you feel that way? The time just goes. And I think that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, the days are evil. They just go. And if you don't live with sobriety about them, you'll miss them. You'll miss them. So chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. You know, I don't have time to read all of these, so I think I'm going to have to just move on. I'll pick out a few here and there. Uh, Despite the brevity of life, we should enjoy it as God's gift. So despite the uncertainties of life, we should enjoy it. Despite the brevity of life, we should enjoy it. You see this in verses uh, 9 to 10 of chapter 11. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. Let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart. and Put away pain from your body. Because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. They are over like that. So you might as well enjoy them while you can. Right? Third, in reverence and service to God, we should enjoy life as God's gift. You could look at 12, 1 to 14. I won't go through that. He summarizes at the end, the conclusion, when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So, in reverence and service to God, you should enjoy life. You should enjoy life. The second upside 
is that God is sovereign and He providentially rules His world. So as, you, as we're surveying the book here, this is Solomon's point, as we're surveying the book, uh, God is sovereign. And there's four things we need to understand about that. Number one, uh, because He's sovereign, we shouldn't trifle with Him. Uh, we really shouldn't mess with God. Right? It's His world. He owns it. He says what happens. Secondly, We cannot change his world and make it to our liking. So 3, 1 to 8, 7, 13. No matter how hard you try, you will not be able to change God's world. It's his. So you can relax and you can enjoy it. Third, we cannot know the future, nor should we try. We cannot know the future, nor should we try. You can turn to 8. 17 for that one. He said, I saw every work of God and I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he doesn't have a clue. He does not have a clue. Nobody knows the future but God. Fourth, God will judge wickedness in the end. There is coming a judgment. It's inescapable because death is inescapable. God will judge wickedness. 3.17 I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. And 11.9 We already read that, so I won't read that again. Third upside. Yeah, these are upsides, by the way. Wait till you hear the downsides. We should enjoy life in a controlled way. Now, for a culture that is awash in excess, this is kind of a weird statement, isn't it? This directly flies in the face of biblical wisdom. Um, Biblical wisdom says you can enjoy life, but do it with self-control. Self-control. So, according to 7.10, he says, uh, be content. Be content with the present. Uh, Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. I always want to go back to the glory days, right? I want to live in the glory days. No, there's only today. There is no going back. I mean, I love movies about time travel because they're fantasy. There is no time travel. We cannot go back and relive the past. So Solomon's point is be content with the present. Be content with the present. Uh, 10, 12 to 14 is the idea of being conciliatory. That is reconciling relationships that are amiss. Uh, You could look there. 10, 12 to 14. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of his talking is folly and the end of it is wicked madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen and who can tell him what will come after him. So, reconcile relationships while you have the opportunity. Sooner or later, 
the other person is not going to be there, and you won't be able to reconcile the relationship. So, so do it while you can. And third is the idea of be cautious. Be cautious. So this is what it means to live life in a controlled way. So if I were to take all of those upsides and I were to summarize them in one statement for you, here's what it is. Uh, live without reserve and die without regret. Right? Live without reserve, die without regret. That's Solomon's point. What are the downsides? Downsides to the truth that we are human and God is God. Here comes the bad news, okay? Three universal downsides. It means that time and chance hold no guarantees. Uh, God's sovereign. We are not. We don't have any control despite what we think. We think that we are sovereign. We think that we can control things. The reality is you have no control. You don't have an iota of control. God controls everything, including your next breath. Secondly, wickedness is incurable and endemic. And that just means uh, there's no getting away from it. Wickedness is everywhere. How many of you would agree with that statement? And we live in a culture that is awash in wickedness. So despite what man thinks, uh, he is not inherently good. You know, everybody tells us, oh, so-and-so, they have a really good heart. No, they don't. I'm sorry to tell you, they do not have a good heart. There is not a one of us that has a good heart. We are not good. Uh, why don't you look at 3.16 real quick. I, I want to talk about this one for just a second. In 3.16 he says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. There is no justice. There is no righteousness. What has instead crept in is wickedness. Wickedness. Four uh, one. I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw tears of the oppressed and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So whether you're the oppressor or the oppressed in the end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's all wickedness. 5.8 If you see the oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. The corruption goes up the chain of command. You cannot get away from it. It's all wickedness. You could look at 7.20 and 9.3 as well. I won't go there. Finally, death is certain. Death is certain. Man is not immortal despite what he thinks. I talked about lifestyle lifts and I talked about hair club for men. You know, you can only do that stuff for so long. I heard one comedian say she was going to have facelifts till her ears met. (laughs) 
you, you can only go so far with that, but the answer is death awaits every single one of you. There is no escape from it. And that is confounding to man. It stupefies him. There is no way to avert it. It is an appointment that you have to keep. Uh, 2.14 to 16. And the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one's fate befalls them both. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with a fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. There's, there's no escape from it. Uh, 3.18 to 22 is the same idea. Uh, just look at verse 19. It says, For the fate, of, uh, the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. Indeed, they all have the same breath. There's no advantage for man over beast for all his vanity. You're going to die like a dog. You're going to die like a dog. We're all going to die. There is no escape. There are only two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. And sometimes taxes lead to death. (laughs) You know, this last year, my mom passed away I never thought I would be an orphan at 45 years old. I am only 45 years old, and both my parents are gone. I thought I had all the time in the world with them. I'd see them into their 80s, right? That was not their lot. That was not my lot. And I tend to not be somebody who is very emotional. How many of you know this about me? I am not an emotional person. What I do as a grieving process is I think about it. I think about it mercilessly and torture myself in my head to try to reason it out, to try to rationalize it out, to try to make sense of it in my head. But I can't make sense of death. There is no making sense of it. You can't reason with death. You can't reason with death. It's like trying to reason with a two-year-old. You cannot reason with a two-year-old. How many of you know this? You can't explain to them, wait a minute, I got some other things to do before I meet your needs. Death is coming, and there's no way to stop it, and it, it just is there. So what do we do with all this? Well, God is sovereign, and you're not. That's the point. So enjoy what he has seen fit to give you for the time that you are here on earth and enjoy it as the free gift of God. Don't try to figure it out. Don't try to control it. Don't try to get around it. It's God's world. Enjoy it. Irenaeus, uh, early church father, he was a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp, as you know, was a disciple of the Apostle John. Uh, This is what he said. 
The glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. When you live life to its fullest, not in a hedonistic way, but just enjoying it as the free gift of God, God is glorified in that. God is glorified in that. So if you're here this morning and you do not know God personally, then you must be absolutely perplexed about the meaning of life. That question, uh, whether you're aged or you're young, it's good to reflect on your mortality, isn't it? It's good to think about it because that awaits us all. So why are we? That question, why are we? Well, in the end, it's, it's, it's not to amass wealth. It's not to pile up experiences or pleasure. Uh, everything we are, everything we build, everything we own is going to disappear. Other people will live in your house. They will buy all your possessions for 10 cents on the dollar if you even get that much. In the end, it will all disappear. We are here for one reason and one reason alone, and what is that? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's what it all boils down to. Everything else is nothing. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for Your Word because it does tell us how to live this life wisely. Father, may we not put stock in the things that are merely vanishing vapors. Father, may we invest in things that are eternal. Father, we want to invest in our relationship with You. Father, we want to love You with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. We ask that you, would, that you would grant us the ability to do that through the enabling of your Spirit. For Father, the flesh is weak. We know the eye gate sees what it wants. We covet things that you have not given us. We desire things that you would not be pleased to give us. Father, we want those things. And sometimes we'll even trade our relationship with you to get them. Father, please help us to live wisely in union with You throughout all of our days, that we might make sense of this life that You've given us and we might enjoy it. Father, may it all be done for Your glory and our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.